To argue or not to argue? To fight or not to fight? Do we protest or do we not? And these are the questions, but they're not the first question. The first question we're going to ask is, am I a safe person? Am I a safe space for others? Am I safe? We are talking about the practicalities of the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe the question that God has for us in these next few weeks, as we discuss a lot of practical topics, is this. Am I safe? Am I safe? Last week, Larry gave us a beautiful treatise on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, really, the Beatitudes, which are uh, are the Sermon on the Mount, but also open the Sermon on the Mount, precede the Sermon on the Mount. They are part of it, but really, they are the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. They help us understand how we are to live uh, the rest of these practical principles out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, which is justice. Blessed are you when you people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If you're not listened to last week's message by Larry, I would encourage you to go to our website, therewatersedgechurch.org slash messages. And as noted, these postures are our posture to be poor in spirit, more in meek, hunger, merciful, pure in heart, to be making a peace, even to be persecuted. These are all uh, ingredients to the, to the good and beautiful life. If our hearts contain this disposition, we will truly be connected to God and one another. If our heart hungers for justice, mercy, conviction, courageous peace, bold, just, bold justice, if our disposition is being okay with being mocked, we actually live the right way, the blessed way, the good on your way, as our Australian friends would say, we would live the most joyous life, the most joyful way. And I think that's where a question comes in. You know, being meek, being one who mourns poor in spirit, that doesn't sound joyful, but joy and, and sorrow are dance partners. Really, where no one and nothing else can cut in. One can't experience the joy of love without sorrow, without sorrow, struggle, and really loss that inevitably comes with loving well. When we discuss true fellowship, we hear Paul's words in Romans 12 that we're to rejoice with those who mourn and or rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And, and you really can't take joy with somebody else if you're unable to mourn with them. That's where the true love is. In fact, if we have joy, we will one day mourn. And that'll actually take us to a deeper joy, a deeper love with one another. There's a mystery in that conversation, but Paul says, this is what it means to live in harmony with one another. And we know that to be intuitively true. To enter ourselves up to love means that we will one day enter ourselves up to sadness. But this is where the virtuous life is. And the virtuous life is the best life. It's the life where we live like Jesus, where we essentially live Jesus. So our scripture in Matthew 5, as we continue, has these words. Uh, before we get into our main topic, I just want to make sure we read through all of Matthew this year. So these words are very important. Matthew 5, 13 to 26 says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and then it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom of God. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is my first homily today, and it'll be quick. But when you hear that last verse, chapter 5, verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would seem impossible to the original hearer's ears. Jesus is speaking this sermon on a mountain to common people, not elite, although elite may be listening and they're free to listen. He's speaking to the poor, to those who are mourning, those who are meek. And to hear those words, you've got to exceed this religious clergy. That, that would seem crazy. But the gospel sometimes seems crazy and at the same time is so true and is so incredibly grounded. As we dig deeper, James Bryan Smith, The Good and Beautiful Life, says, hey, what are the requirements to enter the kingdom of heaven? There's, there's really three statements that Jesus says throughout the Gospels. Two are in Matthew, one in John. And I wouldn't say that this is sequential. This is just how it lined up. I think there's mystery in the order of all this. But one is that we have to look within ourselves and our hearts. What's in our heart? That's what that last statement is. I tell you, your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and teach on the law. What we know is in Matthew 23, Jesus denounces the hearts of the religious clergy at that time because their hearts was filthy. The outside looked good. The inside was dying. So our internal life is designed to, to be examined. We have to examine our hearts and, and bring it to God. Another requirement is to become like a child. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 4, that we must become like children. Innocent, trusting, unabashed, and way less self-conscious, where we feel free to be vulnerable and even run around without our pants on. That's the beauty of kids. <laughs> they just run around free and without shame. Lastly, of course, we must be born water, of water and spirit. That water just means flesh, and spirit means, well, the Holy Spirit must take life within us. It's really God's work in us that God must resurrect our dead places of the Spirit of God guides us. We become righteous when we're indwelt by God, led by God. Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilling the law, everything that comes up to Jesus, the Old Testament, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, Jesus fulfilling law points to our need for Jesus through the Holy Spirit to fully fill our lives to change our hearts, and then our actions will follow suit. So when we have conversations like this, this means we got to pull out the chair. And by pulling out the chair, we need to have conversations with God. And so I'm going to pull out a chair right here, and I want you to envision, to welcome that God being here right now. 
and that whatever we're doing, when we're talking about anger, lust, competition, pride, when we're talking about praying, real prayer, deep centered prayer, when we talk about generosity, this is really about us having a conversation with God. This isn't about behavior management. It's about God. You know what's in our heart. Help fill our heart what's with you. You know what's in our heart. Help fill our hearts with you. Because if we don't have this conversation, a prayerful heart heart with God, we, at water's edge, at our very best, will join the fallen clergy that Jesus warns against. So the chair's set, and now we are into the main part of our conversation today, anger. The very first topic after these Beatitudes and this address that we are called to be salt and light is Jesus addressing anger. And you ever wonder why that is? I think our first reply is that like the first command outside of honoring God and loving God and the Ten Commandments and then enjoying the Sabbath, taking delight in it and honor our parents is murder. And so people could say, well, yeah, anger is related to murder. That's true. But I think there's other reasons why anger is the very first thing that Jesus talks about. Number one, anger is very common. Anger is a response and sometimes a very appropriate response to fear of being threatened. Whether that threat is our very own life, whether it's being laid off from a job, whether it's being accused of being lazy for not doing the dishes. Anger arises also from our unmet expectations of how you and I believe life should be. We believe life should be white. Why am I alone? I'm angry. This is not the way it should be. We're angry when life seems out of control. Why? I mean, this week the church fans stopped working. There's electrical issues. At the same time, my truck stopped working. This feels like things are out of control. The truth is most of life is out of our control. We're angry when life should be quote unquote fair, but it isn't. I mean, I have a strong-willed child that believes each person should get the same amount of cookies, but has no problem stealing cookies. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't do it all the time, she or he. But they have no problem like sneaking one or two. I mean, we're angry at ourselves when we believe we should keep on going, and yet we're so tired. Or maybe we're a little bit more than tired. We're sad or down. I think this is why the Beatitudes are so necessary to take in. It shows us how life really is and now how we think it should be. There are poor among us. There are those who mourn. There's a world that needs mercy. We feel poor at times. We mourn. We need mercy. And psychology tells us that anger is a secondary reaction to sadness and pain. If we're feeling anger, there's something going on beneath. It's almost always an entryway into grief. Anger is an indication that something going on inside us needs to have a conversation with God. Note the chair. <clears throat> Lord, I'm angry again with this person. What's going on? What am I needing? What is this person needing? What are we needing, God? Anger is common. It's a result of sadness, a fear of being threatened. Anger is rooted in a lot of comparison. Even as we hear these next couple messages, there may be one or some of us that believe, oh, we're talking about lust. The men in the church need to hear this. Oh, we're talking about gossip or talk, telling truth. The women in the church need to hear this. And those are really false, false comparisons. I'm not saying that, but sometimes we say that or we say, Johnny really needs to hear this one. And that, that is actually rooted in some deep, angry contempt that we have. These type of accusations are rooted in somewhat of an unredemptive anger that poisons our souls 
and then deteriorates our relationships. My anger. I struggle with it. I, I'm in recovery. I, I experience angry when people don't give it their all. I mean, right now I'm a co-coach in Caitlin's basketball team. And I have found myself yelling and yelling at fourth grade girls who are just trying to learn the game about not getting back on defense, not keeping their eye on the ball, not catching the ball with both their hands, not being aggressive enough. To the point where I realized, hey man, I'm a local pastor in our community and this is what I look like. I mean, look at that picture. <laughs> I mean, literally, this is why I lost my voice last week. And, and if you're like listening to this online, it's the picture that you see as you enter into the, uh, into the sermon. And we think it's funny, but here's the thing that's not funny. My daughter left the practice, just practice one day in tears because she didn't think I was proud of her in that moment. And I don't understand why she could feel that way. The truth is my dad was a coach and it was a highlight of my youth and a low light of my youth. I just want to be helpful. And I've talked with God and I actually want to be these girls' greatest cheerleader. And I talk with Jesus about this. Okay, what, what should I do about this, God? And I had a sense that I just need to be the assistant coach and try not to correct these girls, but just encourage them, be a cheerleader. Um, for girls who are just exploring the sport. That's my conversation with God. That's why I had to have the conversation with God in the chair. See, anger is common. Sadness is common. Accusations are unfortunately common. So why else may God, may Jesus, who is God, be addressing anger from the outset? Well, I think a lot of us believe that our God is an angry God. One who is quick to anger, quick to, to condemn, and really slow to listen, and nothing can be further from the truth. What's interesting here is that as we look at the practical application of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is denouncing violent, vengeful anger, which means our God, who denounces vengeful anger, cannot be a God of vengeful anger. We stated that the book of Matthew somewhat mimics the, the law that uh, Jesus is Emmanuel, Jesus is this new king, this Messiah in the line of David, who is meant, like Abraham, to be a blessing to all nations. But we also know that Jesus is a new Moses. That's what Matthew's making clear. He is a Messiah for the Jewish people that is meant to be king for all people. And he sets up his book as five, uh, along five different discourses, which are meant to, in many ways, imitate or portray or symbolize the five books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And, and what we know about God within the law is that God reveals himself. I am the God who is. I am. That is my name. I am the God. Or he says in Exodus, my name is I am. But he also, later on in Exodus, verse 34, verse, or chapter 34, verse 6, he reveals somewhat of his full name to Moses. He says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is God's name. This is a verse that's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. I mean, you see on the slide here, I believe it's Psalm 108. It's quoted several times. This is the God who's slow to anger, flowing with compassion or mercy, however you translate, and abounding, abounding in love. We've got to see this. God 
is the safest one there is. As we ask the question, am I safe? We have to recognize that God is the safest one there is. So what about my anger? And God's anger for that matter. This is a great question. Before we can discuss how we deal with our unhealthy anger, one that leads to resentment and content, we have to recognize that God's designed us with the capacity for anger. Anger matters because it is the correct response to injustice. We are angry when something, or better yet, someone we love is hurt, even if we're hurting ourselves. The opposite of love is not hatred. I'm sorry, the the opposite of love is hatred. The opposite of love is not anger, but hatred or indifference, which if our anger is left to fester into resentment and contempt, and that can slowly evolve into hatred and indifference. Our anger shows us that actually there is love, and it's hard when we recognize who God is. It's hard to be nonviolent and peaceful without a belief that there is justice, without a belief that there is a God of justice. So what is quote-unquote righteous anger? Well, that's getting angry or being moved at the things that anger God and then pursuing a proper redemptive remedy to correct the wrong. That definition is from James Bryan Smith. Uh, Again, getting angry, being moved. That's my words, being moved at the things that anger God and then pursuing a proper, my word is redemptive remedy to correct the wrong. And you see Jesus' moments of anger in the gospel, Mark 3, Matthew 21. We should be angry with child abuse and financial fraud the rich exploiting the poor. We should be angry at ethnic discrimination. But unhealthy, unprocessed, undiscerned anger is the issue. And this type of anger is really encouraged by our culture. I had, I wrote a lot here. I think what we have to recognize is like the shows that we're watching, that we're binging, they really celebrate violence and anger. And then somewhere in the last couple of decades, scary movies have, have moved from like this like hidden monster to, to torture and gore that is really disturbing. I walked, I've never seen a Saw movie, but I walked into one once and I cannot get those images out of my head. And I walked right out, by the way. And it's not just the movies and the media, our news, our cable news, it's not helpful. It's, it's filled with rhetoric that's undergirded with contempt where accusations and slander are spewed in the name of political righteousness. These are symptoms of an oversimplified, angry socio-political divisions that have led to violence on all sides. And all of this is just an opportunity to be aware of what we're taking in. Because this anger trickles downstream. When, When our boss yells at us, and then we yell at our roommate, or we yell at our spouse, our spouse yells at our dog, our kids, and the kids yell at the dog. It's a contagion of unhealthy anger. And the question I want to get into for the second half of our discussion today is how can anger be diffused and therefore prevent further violence? How can our anger be diffused and prevent violence? That's the first question, but maybe for some of us, how can our anger be diffused and therefore prevent further violence? if we're honest with ourselves. And this is where we get into some of the practicalities of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said in Matthew 21, Matthew 5, 21 verse, excuse me, Matthew 5 verses 21 through 25. 
Jesus says this, you've heard it said that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. That's Exodus 20, 13. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother, with their brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is a form of contempt, is answerable to court. And anyone says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. And that word for hell, that will repeat over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, is Gehenna. That's literally the garbage dump of ancient Jerusalem. Every time our anger smolders inside of us, we become less humane and therefore less human. And left unchecked, the fire inside you becomes all that is left, which is a living hell. Jesus continues, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, and go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, settle your matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in the prison. Prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, as we look at those words, we have to recognize that the original audience had many divisions among them. Many divisions. Romans insulting Jews, Samaritans attacking Jews, Jews fighting back. There's different Jewish parties insulting one another. As uh, N.T. Wright says, fault lines ran through villages, through families, and even households. And yet the question remains. And let me expand upon the question. If reconciliation is the goal, and it is the goal, verse 24, first go and be reconciled to them. Before you worship, go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. If reconciliation is a goal, how can our anger be diffused and therefore prevent further violence? And from this, Jesus offers two really healthy alternatives to an unhealthy consuming anger. First point today, as we ask the question, how can our anger be diffused and therefore prevent further violence? The first point for today is to climb down from on high, take a walk with God in the direction of your enemy or other. Whoever you're fighting with, we need to first come down from on high, come down from our place of mental superiority. This person's wrong and I'm right. And take a walk with God. We don't confront them one way, right away. Take a walk with God. But that walk should be in the direction towards the other. Literally, that's what he's saying. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar and remember your brother, sister, something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Come down from the temple. Take a walk home all the way back to Galilee, a three-day walk. Be reconciled with them. And then come offer your gift. The goal of every conflict, whether it's frustration, situational anger, is, is, is reconciliation. Even if we believe we're absolutely unright, even if we are, are right, we have to climb down from our mental superiority back to earth where we belong and talk to God how we can pursue reconciliation with the others. I mean, what's wonderful here is that Jesus saying reconciliation appears to take precedence over worship. And there's almost a comical illustration here that I've already alluded to. Jesus imagines someone's walked from Galilee, 
where the sermons happen, to the temple courtyard, what's in Jerusalem. That's a three-day walk. They buy a sacrificial animal on the way, and then they remember a relationship that contains anger and contempt, hatred. And, and the scene becomes comedy because you're going to take this live animal, you're going to place it on the altar. I guess you're just going to trust that the animal is going to stay there. I got this dove. I'm going to place it right here. Then you're going to walk all the way back home three more days where most of the heroes live and find that person, apologize that person to, to the potentially offended, seek understanding, and then return all the way back to Jerusalem. What the exaggeration is making clear, and we're going to see a lot of these exaggerations in the Sermon on the Mount, is that life is meant to be lived without contempt. Our life is meant to be lived without a venomous anger. But what can't be missed, because that we all know that'd be true, is we can't be missed, is the beauty in the walk home. That three-day walk, that time, before we jump into conflict, or maybe avoid conflict altogether and sit with resentment is we actually need to take a walk with God. I've walked to the altar. I've got conflict with Greg. I've got conflict with Courtney. Okay, I'm going to go home. But on this walk home, I'm going to walk with you, God. And we're going to talk. We're going to discern together. Again, what I'm needing, what my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my enemy may be needing. We may believe we're innocent at that point, but when we actually stop and release our contentment, because contentment, that actually takes us out of our innocence in and of itself. We can talk to God and recognize, hey, maybe where are we culpable here? Where is our wrong? Rarely is it ever 100% right, 0% wrong. And the truth is, on that walk home, it's better to hand ourselves over to a good and loving father than to let our anger fester and find ourselves guilty before a truly just judge. Where do you find yourself when anger arises? Are you someone who likes to jump in and fight? I'm kind of that person. Or are you somebody who likes to avoid and, uh, for lack of a better word, insulate? To avoid, to isolate. Insulate? Eh, okay. <laughs> and yes... My wife and I have our moments of quote-unquote disputes. And most, if not all the time, there's not one guilty party. A lot of times there's just a misunderstanding and, and mutual culpability. The fastest way to that realization of owning our part is by taking a nice, slow walk with God. He's always there. Yeah, he's in this chair, but he, God's willing, I truly believe this, to take a walk with us. In fact, that's what he's look, That's how he's described of in the beginning of creation, as one who would walk with us. That's who God is. God is light. God brings light. But that light, as we know from Jesus, is not high in the sky. That light is down with us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And we need to enter into that light to see where there's any dark places within us. John writes in his first letter, in the second chapter, anyone who claims to be the light but hates their brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister and lives in light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. We need to climb down on high, take a walk with God, but in the direction of our other, of our adversary, of our enemy, who is our brother and sister, whether they know it or not. 
Reconciliation. Seeking reconciliation, full restoration relationship to build bridges with one another, to seek to understand. And yes, sometimes to agree, to disagree, but to love each other and not avoid one another and to pursue each other. That may just be the greatest growth agent there is. The greatest one there is. And as I think as we take that walk, we can ask the question, how do I, how do, where do we even start? Well, again, I believe it's that word. Am I safe? Lord, am I safe right now? When it comes to this person or these people in my life, when it comes to these people groups, God, am I safe or am I not safe? Would you show me, search me, oh God? You know my heart. You know my thoughts. If reconciliation is the goal, the question again is how can our anger be diffused and therefore prevent further violence? We got to climb down a high, take a walk with God in the direction of the other. And then the next and second and last step today is we need to make friends with our adversary, with our enemy. We need to be friends, to be friend and be friends with our adversaries and our enemies. Matthew 5, verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. He's speaking to a Jewish audience that are longing for the day that God's court is proved right and the enemies will be overthrown. In this case, of course, it's the Romans. But of course, in the past, it's, it's, it's those who've gone before them, the Greeks, um, Persians, somewhat, the Babylonians, Assyrians. But Jesus saying, don't think like that. Don't think in terms of enemies. Make friends, not enemies. The starting point of the church is not destroy those around them, but to reach them in love, to love their enemies. The goal is not to win the argument. It's not about being right. The goal is the relationship, to be able to make a friend, to be a friend. That is the goal. It's not about being right. It's about the relationship. I mean, Jesus took all the anger we have, all the rage, the hatred, the war, the anger against our quote-unquote enemies and placed the load on himself by carrying that cross. Because of that cross, because of God's mercy, we're able to seek reconciliation with God and others so that those who are on the outside, those who are enemies, can be our friends and, by God's grace, our family. I haven't fact-checked this, but I believe there's that famous quote by Lincoln, how do you destroy an enemy? You make him your friend. I really do believe that's probably him but I didn't fact check it, but I think a lot of us have heard that. How do you destroy your enemy? You make him your friend. There's one, one aspect of Lincoln's life that I read about in a leadership journal, and I, it's all, I've only recalled, I read it like 12 years ago, that I believe this is true. It cannot, cannot be true. If it's not, the principle's still dope. <laughs> is that he, um, when he was really angry at somebody, he would write an, a letter, an un- inhibited, uh, uncensored letter to his enemy. And he would hold that letter in his pocket, keep it in his pocket until he was ready to throw the letter away. It's really interesting. I don't think it changed linking in a way that made him avoid conflict, but I did think it made him a much more safe person to be able to get out what you need to get out. That's the beauty with the walk of God is on that three-day walk, the first day can be completely committed to saying, 
this person and naming our hurt and our anger and our wrong to get that out not to stuff it but to get it out but then on the second maybe third day even if it's the last 45 minutes of that walk home to recognize who that person is in God's eyes who we are in God's eyes It's not completely easy, but those we're angry with a lot of times are those who are closest to us. And those who we are angry with that we may not know are designed to be those closest to us. I've quoted James Bryan Smith. We're in that book. A lot of us are right now. And there's a series of questions that he encourages uh, the readers uh, in a separate handout, a supplemental, a supplement to the book, he, he, he provides a series of questions to help us discern a proper response when we are angry. These are ways to invite God to give you a new insight into, into handling certain situations when we are angry. And it's four questions. He says, when we're angry with somebody, think about it. First question, is this matter really worth my attention? This situation that I'm angry about, is it really worth my attention? If no, give it to God and walk away. If yes, move on. And I found a really great biblical example of this. I've been reading Matthew, and uh, I'm in Matthew 18, but last week I was reading Matthew 17. And there's a great example of Jesus doing this, just like saying, it's not worth my attention. Matthew 17, verse 24, this is coming towards the end of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry before, um, before he's taken on the cross. After Jesus and disciples arrived at Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came to the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But... So that may they, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. In other words, the temple was designed to represent a small scale of God's kingdom, where God is king, the Father is king, and the king's son and the king's children, for that matter, do not have to pay the tax. That's what Jesus is saying. I, don't, I shouldn't have to pay this tax. It's a righteous response. I'm the son of God. Why would I have to pay the temple tax? The temple is designed to be my home. And if you're a child of God, it's designed to be your home. Children don't pay the taxes. But so, we may not cause offense. Go throw your lake out of line. Even to Jesus, some righteous arguments are not worth it. They cause stumbling blocks to God's greater purposes. And as they eventually move from Galilee to Judah and Jerusalem, God is there to show his greater purpose. Some righteous arguments are just not worth it. Second question, is my anger justified? If no, then give it to God and walk away. This is a big question. If yes, explore question three. Uh, one quick full to know, one quick full way to know if your anger is justified is understanding whether your expectations of what you want have been met. Whether there's actually been clear expectations of, of how life is supposed to be lived. And, and I think 
This is vitally important as we talk about our anger at others. Have there been expectations and have they been agreed on? And, and here's the thing about expectations. We, they, if they're true expectations, they first need to be conscious. Do you even know what you were wanting in that matter? Are they unconscious? And if they're conscious, they also have to be realistic. Are your expectations grounded in reality? If they're not, they're not justified. Are they stated? Does a person or their party know that this is what you're wanting or needing? If not, your anger is likely not justified. Are they agreed upon? Have you committed together? Have you covenanted together with these realistic expectations? Have you said, yes, we have agreed upon this and we're going to move forward? So when it comes to those small things that become big things like chores, who takes a dog out? When it comes to even how finances are run, if there's no system in place that's been agreed upon based on stated conditions that are realistic and hopefully conscious, a lot of times our anger is not justified. We have to give it to God and walk away. Lastly, or not lastly, number three, do, do I have the right or the ability to control the situation? If no, then give it to God and walk away. Sometimes we can be angry and we have no control. That doesn't mean we become easily defeatist, but sometimes we're in situations where we can't control it. Like our anger, like when we're driving a car, I know everybody talks about driving a car when you preach a sermon. It's like you really don't have that much control when you honk your horn. I mean, the other day I was parked in by someone else. This is Wednesday or Tuesday this week. I went to physical therapy and I need to go home to take my youngest daughter to preschool. Another car literally double parked me. And I had to go in every little business and ask, hey, do you own a gray Toyota Corolla with a toddler's car seat in the back? Do you own, does anybody here own a gray Toyota Corolla with a toddler car seat in the back? And after about 15, 20 minutes, I started to get angry. Started to think of this person really that had no concern for others. I, I went down the mental toxic tapes you do. Finally, I went into this office and I found that there was a person who owned a Toyota Gray, a gray Toyota Corolla with a toddler seat in the back. And I was in this office and the receptionist went to go found this person. I guess it was a client and the office was a psychiatric office. And I started thinking, car seat in the back, psychiatric office. This person's probably in a hard place. Sure enough, a woman came out, fairly apologetic. She said she parked, she wondered if she parked behind, but she was running late and she was so, so sorry, which is just wild nonetheless. But I just told God, it's like, okay, this person, like all people, is probably fighting a great battle. And so all I could say is no problem. I saw you have a toddler. See, I have four kids. Uh, uh, it's, kids make me late all the time. And uh, yeah, I totally understand running late. Truth is, I didn't have any control of the situation. I guess you could say I did, but I don't think I had any control to make change. The only thing that really can make change is this woman to know she's loved in that moment. Even if I'm 20 minutes late. If my, do I have the right or ability to control the situation? If no, you got to give the God a walk away. Then we get to step four. To take appropriate action led by the Spirit. To argue, to not to argue, to fight or not to fight, to protest or not to protest. Sometimes 
we do need to address the conflict and to name wrongs. Sometimes there is an opportunity to enter into conflict, to argue or not to argue. I believe the Holy Spirit will not lead us into endless arguments that we seem to have over and over, but give us an opportunity to create and make peace. I think we, we're recognizing a pattern here. We talk about that before we get to the details of this argument. The goal is peace, to fight or not to fight. I think the Holy Spirit can teach us ways to fight for each other as we get into much-needed conversations about unmet expectations. Here's the truth, though. Rarely does someone come to a conclusion based on our presuppositions, meaning the narratives we create are likely not true. Oh, this person did this because they don't love me. This person said this because they they, they disregard who I am. I mean, and, and as we pan out, that's so true for larger things. This person voted for that person because they're a fascist or a racist. Or that person voted for that person because they're a lazy communist. The truth is we all have deep and complicated backstories and generational influences that inform the myriad amount of decisions and choices we make each day. The goal is that these people are designed to be our friends. Want to make a friend? Fight for someone by listening how they came to their decision. To protest or not to protest. Protests are definitely okay as they are knowingly or maybe unknowingly designed to be a form of prayer. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying in protests against the injustice of the way the world works. So then, if we are to protest, and then we are to protest not as the way the world does, but to walk in a way that walks with love. To remember, blessed are the meek, the nonviolent, because as Larry pointed out, and as MLK, Martin Luther King, demonstrated, as Mahatma Gandhi demonstrated, as our Lord Jesus demonstrated, it's the kind of protests where you can slap me on the face and know that I'm still here. I'm still here, and I'm still praying, and I love you as God loves you. And it's that kind of love that changes the world. If you're going to walk, be salt and light. If you're going to protest, walk. And don't join in the F-bombs, but join in the call, the cry for justice. Again, am I safe? That is the question. That is the goal. And that goal takes time. If you're somebody who's come to the faith, if you're somebody who's been in faith, we have to recognize that. Change, change like this really takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. If you're somebody who's quick to anger and quick to condemn, I think the first thing we can do is not to be angry at ourselves for being angry, but to welcome God's kindness and to seep it in so that it will exude from us. That's who God is. God is kind. God is gentle, faithful, abounding in love and compassion. May we receive that love and respond in kind. Let's pray.